0: morning, church. My name is Andy Maddock. I'm the lead pastor of Valencia United Methodist Church, and it is a joy and a privilege to be before you this morning. We are starting a new series on burning questions, and I got a little uh, hesitant and shy about the title with the fires that we had in our community last week, but ultimately, these are the questions that stick in our craw, that burn with within us, and they are historical. They've been going on and coming to pastors and God alike. Uh, for millennia, not just in your series, but for those of you who might be new, we uh, solicited these questions from this church body uh, in our last sermon series, and we wanted to be able to respond uh, to the questions that were on the hearts for me as a pastor or for God uh, who underwrites us all uh, as a part of this time, and so I look forward to that. Would you join me in a moment of prayer as we get started? Gracious and ever-loving God in whom we live and move and have our being, we give you thanks for this day. We ask for your providence and your presence in our midst. We ask that you bless this time of worship, that we might be able to say that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, that they were acceptable in your sight, O Lord, who is our strength and the source of all salvation. Amen. So why burning questions? Uh, That's a great question, and ultimately, as we've been working on this series and looking at some of the fantastic questions you have, it is one that I've asked myself in the last couple of weeks. But burning questions serves as an opportunity for us to get real with one another. And so I just wanted to start with saying why we're doing this series in the first place. The first is, is it lines up with my heart as a pastor. I long to be transparent and honest with you. I want to be the kind of person in integrity that when I come up against a question where my honest answer is and ought to be, I do not know that we'll come to that place faithfully with a sense of trust and purpose. But as a man of compassion, one who suffers with, this burning question series also serves as an opportunity for me as a pastor to come alongside these deep questions and to be present to you when we ask them. I think it's an authentic process. It's a chance to be real. This is where we are as a people. So many of these questions come from you all. They are at your heart, and therefore I think close to the heart of God and close to my heart. And they're authentic insofar as we get the chance as a community over the next few weeks to take the time to address some of these deeper issues as the people of God. Because it would be entirely possible to come here week in and week out and to celebrate and lean into the grace and love and mercy and forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus without ever taking the opportunity to struggle with something more and something deeper. My third reason is, is it's biblical. Nobody, not nobody, got more questions than Jesus did. Usually when he was preaching, he got a lot of yeah, buts. He'd say something profound, he'd feed somebody, he'd heal somebody, and then somebody would be there to say, yeah, but what about, or doesn't it say, or don't you think that? And Jesus answered those from a place of compassion and a place of love. Now, the other biblical example that I think is valuable is where we preached two weeks ago, and that's when the rich strong ruler asked his question. He was not happy with the answer. He went away sad because he was wealthy. Now, I don't want to send anybody running out this morning. We've locked the doors. You're all with me for the next 20 minutes. But I do want us to be present to one another and to risk a little bit of vulnerability and to weigh into some of these deeper things because ultimately there's a power to asking the question, why? Particularly on this week where we're gonna talk about evil and death and suffering. I wanna give you two fancy words to go home with today. The first is theology. We understand the concept of ologies. Biology, the study of bios or life. Psychology, the study of the mind and psyche. Sociology, the study of social systems. Theos in Greek means God. And so theology means the study of, or the thought of, God. And we get the chance to spend some good time in working through how it is we think about God and how it is when we think about God, it impacts what we believe and how we live our lives. Scripture's an awesome source for doing theology. Scripture's a way of understanding some of the work and will of God in our lives. But as we'll discover next week when our topic is in fact the Bible, there are ways in which the dance that we do with Scripture ought to be nuanced because Scripture is complicated. And sometimes what we read in Scripture does not line up with the life we lead outside the doors of this place. We look for the answers that we hope to find and we don't. And so sometimes our theology, our thoughts on God go past our Scripture into some deeper realm. And our hope is is that faith would lead to certainty in those places. But I want to challenge you first this morning by saying it is okay when we think about God in our theologies for our faith to lead us into patterns of doubt. You heard it in the very first line this morning. I believe, help my unbelief. Very first thing we sang together. I believe, help my unbelief. That's a prayer from a father who longs to have his child healed. One of the questions we'll get to at the end of this is, why do children die? Parents long for the health and vitality of their children. The man goes to Jesus and says, I want my child healed. Jesus says, do you believe it's possible? The man says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Within the very fabric of the Bible itself is an affirmation that our faith can be coupled with times of uncertainty and doubt. Theologian Paul Tillich, who's a A favorite of mine, 1952, wrote a book called The Courage to Be, where he made the argument that when man as a being truly encounters a God who is bigger than us, there's nothing but fear there, because it reminds us that we are not the center of our universe and the whole of our own story. There's something more. And in fact, when we come to know something more, we realize that we can go without. And so Tillich argues that when we talk about death and suffering and dying, faith will always lead... Not to certainty, but to speculation and concern. He says there are three big fears. There is the fear of death itself and whether or not we are fated to die. I stand before you today as a mortal man. There will come a day when Andy is not. I'm not afraid of that statement. There are some ways I could go out which terrify me. But ultimately our first fear is of death. The second fear we have is one of meaninglessness. Yes, we know we're going to die, but what if on that day we find out that our life had absolutely no meaning? What happens after I'm gone? Have I left my mark? Have I done something of substance? Will people remember me? Will people remember me for good or for bad? The fear of death, the fear of meaning. And then he says the third one is the fear of consequence. If God has something to say about how we ought to live our lives, what happens when we come to that end of our story and we realize that we haven't done all that we should or probably more convicting all that we could have done? Tillich reminds us, a part of the fabric of the faith life, the deep question of why and how we think about God can lead us to doubt and to deeper questions. So let's talk about evil, death, and suffering. I want to give you your second big word for the day. It is theodicy. Theodicy is the language that theologians and philosophers use to talk about the problem of evil. Why is there evil in the world, and what does God have to do with it? This fancy word convicts me because I don't think it's terribly fair. Let me tell you why. Theos, we just talked about. Theos means God what the DK part of that word is? It's a Greek word that doesn't mean evil. This is not a word that says God and evil. DK means to vindicate or to justify. Because for thousands of years, good, well-meaning people, theologians who think about God, who've tried to say, well, if evil exists, we have to justify or vindicate God's part in that. As a way of suggesting in the word itself that there is a tension between the goodness of God and the evilness and brokenness of the world that surrounds us. You see, our convictions about God drive our understanding of the world. Philosophers and theologians put it this way, if God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving, why then do bad things happen? What a fascinating question. You know, the Book of Mormon puts it better. That musical has a line in it where the, the lead character sings, why do bad things happen, but more importantly, why do bad things happen to me? So I'll ask it this way. If God loves me and God knows me and God has a plan for my life and God can do things for me, why do bad things happen to me? Or why do I choose to do bad things? I wish it was that simple and that black and white. If we could distill an answer, we could all go home. But these are questions that we've been wrestling with for thousands of years as a people in relationship to God. And the simple truth, and even our scriptures confess it, is is one of the simple facts is that people can experience the same thing in very different ways. The Old Testament historical example is that every great conquering and establishment of the people of Israel comes at the expense of a conquered people in the land of Canaan. So every time the psalmist gives praise to God for conquering enemies, there are winners and losers in that dynamic, and they experience the same battle very differently. I'll give it to you a little more local. How many of you are grateful that we got some rain? How many of you are grateful that it's not 111 degrees outside when we leave church today? Amen. We have a spirit of gratitude for the changing weather in our system. You know who doesn't? The people of Sonora in Mexico, hundreds of people evacuated and homes destroyed as Hurricane Kay made its way onto the Baja Peninsula. That's the same weather system that drives the people of Valencia to say, oh, it is so good to walk out even though it does crazy things with my hair when it's this humid. We all experience the world through the lens of our personal experience. And so one of the things that happens is if God is these things, loving, knowing, powerful, and God is not acting in a way that we might expect, we run into what's called a paradox. Paradox is a fun word. It literally means a conflicting uh, or impossible combination of ideas, right? We tend to think of it as a jumbo shrimp. Forget about that. Somebody asked the right question in our Burning Questions series. What can God not do? That's a philosophical question that philosophers have been teasing out for hundreds of years. Oftentimes they'll ask it this way, if God is all-powerful and can make anything, can God make a rock that God cannot lift? Oh man, the wheels start turning, the steam comes out of the ears. If God could make anything, can God make a stone that God cannot lift? If the answer is yes, God has the ability to make a stone that heavy, then you've limited God's physical ability to lift that rock. If you say, no, God can't make a stone that God can't lift because God is strong enough to lift any good thing, then you say, well, aha, gotcha, because you just told me there's now something God cannot do, a paradox, a grouping of contrasting ideas that cannot exist in the same place. See, paradoxes are good at shattering our boxes i know god to be this and yet this happened and if they try to coexist it's no different than stones god cannot lift there's a tension in the human experience and out of that tension that that struggle that paradox the history of theology and philosophy have come up with some very quick shorthand answers one's a biblical one god created everything and therefore god created evil God has a plan, and therefore when bad things happen, that's a part of God's plan. That's an answer that some people give, that in the face of loss, in the face of grief, in the face of deep suffering, they will say, praise be to God, there must be a lesson I am supposed to learn from this that sense of God and causality, that God is making things happen, and if it is not God, maybe it is an evil one who competes with God as the devil, and it is the devil that does the bad things, and God does the good. There's a problem and attention for me. It becomes a paradox, because I cannot look at the news that surrounds me and say that that young jogger who was raped and murdered by the name of Eliza Fletcher, that that was God's plan, that that happened to her. And when you go beyond just the scope of one story into the scale of things, you say, I cannot imagine that 9-11 was a part of God's plan for America, for the people in the towers, for the people on the plains, for the first responders who gave of themselves. How is that a part of what God has set into motion or God has made to have happen? second answer from history comes from the New Testament. It's rooted in the idea of the old yes, but Paul articulated it's in Romans 5, and it's all, everybody, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we've all sinned and we all choose a path that puts us at distance from God's plan for creation, then no wonder bad things continue to happen to us. Now that allows for a catch-all for some of the problems we have, right? Why does Eliza die because of the sin of another? Why do the World Trade Towers fall because of the sins of the few. And yet, within that system, we rise up with some paradoxical questions that just don't satisfy me. Maybe they do you, but they do not me. If God loves and cares for us, why does God allow that to happen? Or if you're a biblical literalist in a more substantive way, why then is that tree in the garden of good and evil in the first place? If God does not want brokenness, sinfulness, Why is there the capacity for it? Some other answers. St. Augustine from the early church said it's a problem of free will. Yes, we're given freedom, and that freedom is initially to choose good or bad rather than Paul's sense that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have a human freedom, and that human freedom often leads us astray. And then there are some bizarre philosophical ones as well. One that says evil and suffering is necessary Because if there wasn't evil, we wouldn't know good. If there wasn't suffering, we wouldn't know comfort. If there wasn't sorrow, we wouldn't know joy. And yet we see lived out time and time again a preponderance, a scale of suffering on the backs of those who have already suffered so much. There seems to be a severe disconnect there and that all of the blessings seem to be reaped on those who are probably less than deserving. There are those who don't want to make it a deterministic thing at all. God has no part in it. It's simply causality, cause and effect, and consequence. Everything can be described as a response to something else in history that has brought us to this moment. It's fair, but it kind of pulls God out of the equation in that regard. The one that always kind of blows my mind is I've just that a minor in philosophy in college, but the one that always kind of blows my mind is this one. It says, no matter what you think about the problem of evil, here is the assurance that you should take. Even if your life is terrible, this is the best possible version of the universe and of God that we could get. Ooh. I believe in a God who wants me to do better, and I think I can accept this, expect the same thing of God. With these kind of before us, let's talk about me. My path has wandered me into my convictions, study, prayer, my experience of God, my wrestling with God and God's people. I lean on a couple of things. One is I'm a Methodist pretty much through and through. And our founder, John Wesley, relied heavily on an understanding of grace that said it was not just available to those who deserved it or who had earned it, but that grace was given to all, freely given. And there becomes a responsibility of the human individual and the freedom that God gives us to respond to that grace. But God's first gift, God's first act of love to each of us is freedom, including the freedom to turn our back on God completely. See, God could have fixed all of this if God had just created a system where we didn't have the ability to reject God. If we were all autonomous robots who did the right thing every time but then the scope and the scale of that is such that we know that the right thing for me is not always the right thing for you and so what happens when the world comes into conflict again well the whole system starts to fall apart how do we preserve the integrity of that by honoring that god has gifted us free will with that freedom comes accountability and responsibility and consequence but first and foremost we are given free will And then that requires a nuanced understanding of God. And I want to give you a little bit of that before I get to the last of your tough questions for this week. I believe in a God who is present with and who suffers with humanity. One of the things I liked about the 9-11 video at the beginning is it said that God cries with us. I believe in a malleable, changeable God who suffers with the human experience. Scripture talks about times where God changes God's mind. I do not believe in this all-powerful, all-knowing God who has never changed in the course of human history. I believe in a God who has been responsive to longing to share a story with humanity about building relationship as facilitated through Jesus Christ. So if I don't believe in the philosophical, all-powerful God and I put limits on God, the important thing to know is while I believe in a limited God, He far exceeds the limits of Andy. The scope and the scale is by no means identical, but I believe in a God who weighs into the human experience, who is present in the midst of our suffering, not a God who turns His back on us when we are not righteous or worthy, but a God who dwells with us. Incarnation is a powerful word in the Christian scriptures, a God who is present to our story. Where is God in 9-11? In the first responders, in the lost lives, in grieving widows and children, in shaping an opportunity to somehow have the world be different in light of the experience of brokenness that we shared as a people. For me, God was not in the planning, the choice, the execution. God's in the response. A God who has limits but that still exceed mine is still capable of meeting need, of responding to prayer, of opening us up to new influence and new ways because I believe that when we understand God, we have to know that God strives to be heard and to be known even today. I don't believe in a completionist sense of Scripture that says everything that God had to say was accomplished by the year 60 A.D., I believe that God continues to speak to and through the people of God. And if God wants to be known, we owe it to ourselves to figure out where God is at play in our midst. The disciples see a man who was born blind, and they turn to Jesus and they say, Who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? Why is he like this? Remember Jesus' answer? Jesus' answer is neither his parents nor he sinned. He's like this so that God can be glorified. I believe in a God that works in spite of our struggles and through our suffering. When I look around and I see the homeless in our community and the L.A. County Homeless Census came out the day before last. By number, there are 220 people in Santa Clarita City who live without homes. When I hear that and I see that, I don't then say, boy, I wonder what they did to screw up their life. What choices they made that put them there. I wonder what sin they've committed, that God is punishing them in such a way. I am not at all wired like that. What I do here is God saying, "Andy, what are you equipped to do about it? What are you calling the people of God to weigh in and make a difference? How can I be known in and through that? The piece I lean on most is the scripture I wanted read this morning. It comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. It will be familiar to most of you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a powerful psalm to quote in the middle of your theological teaching. No! in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us why for I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us will be able to separate me will be able to separate you or your children or your children's children the people you know or the people you don't know will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. God's great love in Christ puts us in an absolutely inseparable relationship. What that means is is that in the midst of your grief, in the midst of your struggle, and in the midst of your doubt, God still meets you there. If you think, Pastor, are you telling me that it is okay for me to be mad at God? Absolutely. The psalmists do that best. The prophets do it all the time. Do you mean to tell me that God can meet me in the midst of my grief because of the loss or the things I do not understand about my life and how it's wound up where it is? Absolutely. God is wired in just such a way. I want to end with a couple of your tough questions. I couldn't figure out quite how to be on the nose with some of these great ones without kind of wandering into them as a community. One of the most powerful questions that was submitted via our email is, why do children die? That's a big why question. Because it gets at the heart of what we've already talked about. Not only just why do bad things happen or why do people I care about die, but why do children in their innocence, and in their potential, die? Had a great question. And I'll tell you that it's a part of the wrestling of the human experience. I want you to know as I weigh into this that uh, Camille and I lost our first child to a miscarriage. And in the midst of that, all of that expectation that was built into hoping for our first child was somehow lost in the midst of medical intervention. And at that time in my life, and even now to today, when I consider that some 22 years ago now, 21 years ago now, I wouldn't want somebody to have the right selection of words and verbs and adjectives and sentences and paragraphs to explain away for me why it hurts so bad. Because if someone had the perfect answer for me about why I was so deeply grieved about that loss, it would have minimized it. It had to hurt. That's how I knew it mattered. When I do funerals, I always lift up the same two truths, and they're probably not what you think they are. The first is that grief is not a competition. There are not medals that are given out. It's a collaborative community experience. And the second is this, our grief, our mourning, our deep struggles with these questions about death and dying, that hurt is not because of death. Grief is not a function of loss. You might say, well, gosh, I'm thinking of my mom right now. I'm thinking of my, my, my beloved teacher. I'm, I'm thinking of a child I've lost or some tragedy. Are you mean to tell me that, that it, it doesn't hurt me because they have died? Absolutely. Absolutely, I'm telling you that. Your grief and mourning is not a function of your loss. It's a function of love. If you had not loved and connected with that other person, with that family member, with that story, it wouldn't mean a thing to you that they had died. Your pain is rooted in your experience of your relationship with them, of your deep and abiding love with them. That's what makes it count. Why does it hurt when children die? Why do children die? I don't have the perfect answer, but I know that when that happens, we should be grieved. And in the midst of that grief, we should look to do something better. If there are things that we can control and we do not, that is a sin of omission. If children are going to die because of hunger and homelessness, that sits on my shoulders and on yours. If children are dying because of preventable disease, that is a call to action. It should hurt when children die. And when our own children are taken from us, it should probably hurt the most. Second question. If God ordains leaders, as it says in Romans 13, why do we have such terrible ones? (laughs) Or more to the point, why do we get some of the worst examples from history? Your Pol Pot's, your Hitler's, your Mussolini's, your Stalin's. If God's in control of government, and Romans 13 says God has appointed your leaders and you shall serve them with faithfulness because God has put them over you, one of the things that you will learn about Pastor Andy is that he has a strong dialogue with Pastor Paul. I have a high Christology. I have a mid-range Paulology. Paul spends a lot of his time trying to contextualize the experience of the people of faith in this brand new thing called Christianity. Am I calling him wrong? No, but I do think that there's a nuanced dance you do with this. Do I think that all leaders were put into place by God? Heavens, no. Heavens, no. Because he goes on in Romans 13 to talk about the idea that they should then reflect the heart and will of God, and we've seen examples of that just trampled on throughout our human history. I think the worst leaders in our midst are propped up and put into place by systems of power that are fallen and sinful. They don't reflect the heart of God. And it becomes the work of each of us to unbind those structures and to try to undo the brokenness of those systems to allow God's purpose to reign. One more thought from the last great question from this week it'll come up again uh, later in our series but i wanted to touch on it today since we've talked so much about death do you believe our loved ones are looking down on us from heaven what a great question because it's twofold if you're being honest the first part is is are my beloved grandparents a part of that cloud of witnesses do they see me at my finest do the friends that I've lost cheer me on in life's hard points? Can I truly carry the message in the memory of someone that I have lost and loved forward with me into my journey and experience? Second part to that question is, can Grandpa see me in the shower? <laughs> Do my loved ones look down on me from heaven? I'm going to answer this one from a place of humility. I don't think my life, as fascinating as it is at times, is any of my beloved family members' favorite HDTV channel in eternity. If I truly believe the conviction that my loved ones have gone into the eternal and full experience of God in heaven. And they are now experiencing all of the promises that Scripture lift up and those we can't even imagine because it's something that exceeds our expectations and imagination. And they are having a full experience of God Almighty. Why would they care about what I'm making for lunch? Anybody feel like your life is that captivating? I don't. I don't. And you might think then, Well, then do you despair that your loved ones aren't there to comfort you? No, because I believe in a God who cares deeply about me and cares deeply about you. We have the promise of the book of Hebrews that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses when we are running the race to which it's been laid out before us. So what I think happens is this. It's a storyteller's nuance, but work with me for just a second. I imagine a God who's willing to go up to my dad's dad, George, and go, you ought to watch this because he's about to impress you or who goes up to my mom's mom, Carol, and says, you need to watch this because Andy is hurting and he could use some of your strength. Do I think that the Spirit connects us beyond the binds of eternity and allows for that kind of engagement? Absolutely. I'm willing to sit in that mystery, but do I think that our beloved saints who have gone before Are so captivated by the minutia of our mortal life that we somehow draw their fascination and their attention away from the king of kings the lord of lords and the god upon the throne of heaven i don't know what your answer is but i'm humble enough to say i am not that interesting two opportunities There are a number of voices beyond my own that kind of shape who I am. I realized after I shared these in the first service, they are all white men, and I apologize that, but it's what I brought to the table today. I'm going to work on that for the coming weeks. They are listed in your sermon notes if you're interested. One is When Bad Things Happen to Good People by Rabbi Harold Kushner. Powerful book, short one. If you're struggling with that deep question, it's worth your time and energy. A philosophical one and actually is as much about therapy as it is about God is Viktor Frankl's man's search for meaning and his use of the experience of people in the Holocaust and their need to talk about God and their experience your stories are important says the people of the UMC valuable resource the third and more contemporary one it's only about 10 years old is Adam Hamilton his United Methodist pastor his book on why a real short read but a good one there are more beyond that as well Use voices beyond mine, because at the end of the day, I could be wrong about a lot of this, and I'd be okay with that. But here's what I need you to know, friends. Tomorrow, I'm going to be at my desk, just around the corner here from 9 to 11. If the Spirit is nudging you, and you need to come confront, or engage, or ask the burning follow-up question, you can feel free to drop by. You can call. You can email. You can Facebook message. You can Instagram message. You can carry your pigeon. You can do whatever you need to do reach out to me. And if that timing's terrible, use it as a chance to reach out and say, I've got a question, but I don't have the time. This would be better, and I'll see what I can do to make that happen. Because where we started, this comes from a pastor's heart, from your pastor's heart. And the need to be authentic and to long to see God alive in our midst. The rest of this series, we're going to get into some big ones. What is the Bible, and what does it say to us? That's next week. Let's talk about the body of Christ in the church and our bodies and human sexuality. That's two weeks out. How do we live a life of faith? And ultimately, so what? Why now? Why me? That's where we'll end. This will be good stuff. It's good work because it's God work. Would you join me in a moment of prayer?